I too pray that you had a good Thanksgiving. We enjoyed ourselves. Uh, we took a little drive to South Florida to see some short ones, and uh, they ran us ragged for a few days, and we came home and crashed. And I have found myself this morning being extremely forgetful. I'm not sure why. There's all sorts of things that I've forgotten this morning, and so I'm hoping I don't forget anything uh, in here, because I actually wrote this two weeks ago, so... I don't know what it says, so we'll we'll see. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't have a clue of what's in here. I do know it's from the book of Jude, though. So if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to open it to the 65th book. And let's look at this short little letter that Jude wrote. Uh, again, as I pointed out, another half-brother of Jesus, uh, brother of James, who uh, writes a letter. And at the beginning of this letter, he identifies himself. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, I know in your Bible it says a servant, but it really should say slave because he considered himself to be an indentured bond servant of Christ, a relationship of love, of course. He indicates who his audience is. He refers to them as the called, the beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. And then he gives his greeting. And even in the midst of his greeting, you can already see his intention in writing. It's almost as though he just can't wait to get to what he wants to talk about. So even in the midst of his uh, greeting, he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And what he means by that is, watch out for the fear being brought by the false teachers and the judgment that they're bringing into the church. Watch out for that. May mercy be multiplied to you instead. May peace be multiplied to you instead. May the love of God be multiplied to you instead. Instead of fear, may these things be multiplied into your life. And so even from the starting blocks, we already have Jude's intention. But this morning, we're going to look at the two verses in which he gives specifically his intention. Verses 3 and 4. He writes these words, Beloved, I was very eager, although I was very eager, to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 3, you will see that Jude had an original intention in writing. When he picked up his writing utensil and papyrus or whatever it is he wrote on, he indicates that he originally intended to write something about what he calls our common salvation. Now, it's a very interesting phrase, because it's actually two words in the Greek you might be familiar with. The first of these two words, this word common, in the Greek is uh, koinea from the word koinea. It means ordinary, or it can mean widespread, or it can be mutual, mean mutual. Now, it's a word which, if you stop and think about it for a moment, has a number of different connotations that you need to think about as to whether or not Jude is using it in that sense. There's a number of different ways that we use this word common. And the question is, is how is Jude using it when he talks about our common salvation? Now, one way that we use this word common is in the sense of just ordinary. Like, we are just common folk, right? 
We're just ordinary people sort of thing. And the connotation then of the word is that, well, this salvation is then just something ordinary to us. It's just an ordinary kind of thing. It's just something that you have in your life. It's just ordinary. Now, is that the way that Jude is intending the word? When he says, I wanted to write to you about just our ordinary salvation. It's nothing really special or important. It's just common. And the answer is probably not, because you will notice that later in the same verse, verse 3, Jude insists that this salvation is worth contending for. If it's a common, ordinary kind of thing, nothing special in your life, then why contend for it? So clearly he can't be using the term in just this sense of ordinary. Another way that we use this is the idea that it is, well, widespread. It's common amongst us in the sense that it's something we all have or all have access to. In fact, the word itself, the reason you may be familiar with the word is because the form of Greek that we have in the New Testament is called Koine Greek, common Greek. It's the ordinary language of the day. The typical people of that day spoke and wrote a common form of the Greek language, which all the apostles wrote in. And so it was a widespread kind of thing. It's all around us. So is Jude referring to our salvation as simply something that everyone has access to in the world? It's just out there. It's just common amongst everybody. It's just widespread. Well, probably not. Because Jude, again, later in the same verse, insists that this particular salvation has been delivered, notice, to the saints. Okay, So it hasn't been delivered just to everybody. It's been delivered to the saints, a specific subset of people. So it cannot be that Jude is referring to it as simply something ordinary, meaning not too spectacular or important, or widespread in the sense that everybody has access to it, So there must be some other meaning. Well, there is. And that is another way that we use this word common when we use it to mean mutual. Something we, you and I, have in common. Something you and I possess in common. A trait that is common between us. In this case, Jude, is undoubtedly considering this salvation to be a common trait between himself and his audience. Our common salvation, what you and I have in common in terms of trusting in Christ. In fact, Jude's entire premise is that the readers are fellow believers with him. I mean, that was his point and to those who are called beloved in God the Father up in verse 1. or Yeah, verse 1. So he's, he's, in this case, when he calls it a common salvation, he's not saying it's just something ordinary, something widespread. He's saying, no, it's something you and I have in common. We have a common trait between us. You believe in Jesus and have trusted him by faith for salvation, and so have I. And so we have something in common. So I wanted to write to you something that you, about something which you and I have in common. So I wanted to write about our common salvation. Which leads us to the second word, of course, and that's the word salvation. This is the word soterios. As I said, those two words might be words you're familiar with or might have heard before. Koinea for Koinea Greek and soteria for the word salvation. Soteria is a word which means deliverance or rescue. In this case, the state of having been saved. Now, notice something here. 
And you're going to see this twice this morning. Jude uses the word salvation as a noun, something you possess. Okay? Our common salvation. The common in this case is an adjective of a noun, a person, place, or thing, something you possess, right? Salvation, something that we have. Although, in the New Testament, this word, soterios, is mostly used as a verb, mostly used as an action, as something one does. I believe, therefore I am saved. Saved being an action, something that someone does to rescue you or deliver you from that. But Jude here uses it rather as a noun. You're going to see this again, as I said a moment ago, in another word in a few minutes. What Jude is referring to here, then, is the work of Christ whereby he rescues sinners from condemnation and wrath. The action being his work of salvation, which then becomes, for those he has saved, a trait within them. It becomes then something about them. So this salvation is something they possess by virtue of what it is that Christ has done. Jude is speaking then of a common trait of possessing the state of being saved. That believers have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And thus, they can say, I possess something called salvation. I have this thing called salvation. I have this state of being, which is that I have been rescued because of the work of Christ. So, soterios is a word, is typically a verb, the action of Christ to save a people. But Jude uses it in the sense of, and thus we can say we possess something. What do we possess? We possess a state of having been saved by what it is that Christ has done. Okay? Now, when we talk about this, the reason why this word may seem familiar to you is soterios is the word from which we get our word soteriology. If you remember our study of theology, none of you do, but if you remember our study of theology on Wednesday nights, we spent a great deal of time talking about soteriology. It is the single largest branch of Christian theology, the single largest branch in terms of all of the various details that go into uh, what it is to be saved. It includes things like redemption and atonement and propitiation and satisfaction of the law, conversion, regeneration, faith, and the list goes on and on of things that belong within this category. In fact, I spent 25 weeks on soteriology in our theology class because there's that much stuff. Remember, when we did the soteriology class, I did 25 weeks, and each week was on one particular topic, one of these words that I just gave you. There's 25 of them, at least, in this category. It's the single largest section of theology because guess what? What the Bible really wants to get around to is the discussion of what it means to be saved. What it is that God decreed, Christ came to do, the Spirit applied, and ultimately uh, becomes the uh, future uh, for the elect. So this is this soteriology, the, this broadest branch at the heart of biblical revelation. So, Jude writes saying, I originally intended to write to you about some aspect of our common state of being saved. 
what you and I have in common in terms of the fact that we have been set apart by Christ and been saved. We've trusted in this Christ, of course, and he has saved us, and so therefore we have this common trait. I wanted to write something about that. Now, Jude never tells us what that is, does he? He never tells us. Uh, he does intend to write some sort of theological tome about some aspect of salvation, but he doesn't really tell us. We could speculate, however. Given the theme of the book, given the idea of judgment in the middle as the single largest section, the apocalyptic language in the middle, it's very possible that Jude wanted to write a subject on propitiation, on the idea of Christ averting the wrath of God uh, upon the sinner by taking it upon himself. I'm speculating, but could very well be. I don't know. We won't know, of course, until we get a chance to ask him. So, Jude says, I intended to write on a topic related to something about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write something else, to write from a different perspective. Now, Jude is still going to write theologically, Okay. Yes, he's not going to discuss some particular aspect of soteriology. He's not going to give us, for example, an overview of propitiation and go through a lengthy, detailed uh, examination of what propitiation is, for example. Uh, he doesn't do that. He's still going to write theolo theologically. The difference is, is he's not going to write didactically, meaning he's not going to write some sort of teaching tome to try to bring across ideas and teach them. Rather, he's going to write what we call polemically. He's going to write polemically. A polemic writing is a writing in which an individual is strongly critical of something or someone. Uh, a polemical work is when you write something to take someone else's work to task, to say what they have written or what they are contending is wrong, and here's why I think it's wrong. That's a polemic. So this is a polemical writing, and we know that because as we read later in the book, you'll discover that he's going to write against people, false teachers. In fact, verse 4, he gives us that point. He's going to write and say, these people are bringing in things you need to be careful of. They're dangerous. And here's what's going to happen if you don't, if you're not careful. So this is very clearly a polemical work. Paul writes a few polemical works himself. The book of Galatians is polemical. We would call Romans more of a didactic work. We would call Galatians more of polemical work. Now, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, that's a sentence worth some effort because it isn't what you think it is at first glance. Notice that Jude uses the word faith here at the core. The word faith is a simple word used all over the New Testament, hundreds of times, in fact, pistis in the Greek. But in this particular case, what Jude does is he uses the word in the same way that he used salvation earlier. Remember I said a moment ago there are going to be two words in this section that he's going to use as nouns rather than verbs? Well, here's the other one. He talks about a common salvation, uses it as a noun, meaning something we possess, the state of being saved. But now he uses the word faith as a noun. And here's what I think he means by this. Let me just give you the definition first, then we'll look into it. The full revelation of God. 
involving every aspect of what it means to be saved. The full revelation of God involving every aspect of what it means to be saved. Now let me just point out the problem here. When you use the word faith as a noun, you produce problems in your belief systems. This word as a noun can uh, cause difficulty because there is a tendency for us to think of faith as a possession. To think of faith as a possession. Okay, If you use it as a noun, something tangible, that's the natural tendency, right? Okay, I have faith. Or I belong, more, more radically, I belong to a faith or a faith tradition. Okay, see? So that this word can cause difficulty. Now, when we use this word throughout the New Testament, when this word is used, as I said, it is typically used as a verb, an action word, something that you do. And, of course, my definition of that, let me repeat it, as I have many times before, but you're going to memorize this over time. It's going to be on the final, by the way. A radical trust in the promises of God as fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, Faith is a radical trust in the promises of God as those promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right? It's an active trust. To say that you have faith means that you trust something. To call it a radical trust is to say this trust is such that I believe it to the point that it transforms every aspect of my life. I trust it so much that my entire life is reframed by the fact that I trust in the promises of God. That's why I use the word radical. It's not just a simple trust. Anybody can have simple trust. No, it's a radical trust. It's a transformative kind of trust. It's a transformative belief in the veracity or the truth of God's promises as one embraces the work of Christ to be saved from sin. The entire premise of the book of James, which we spent 11 months dealing with, was that particular point, was it not? Faith is not something that you just possess. Faith is something that you exercise, which transforms your entire existence, your entire thinking process, your entire set of actions, all your language, everything about you is transformed because you trust in Christ. You're not the same because you trust in the promises of God. But here, notice, Jude uses it as a noun, something you possess. In fact, he uses it as a descriptor, like salvation above, to describe the content of faith as a system. Now, I have you noticed, by the way, and this is an important technical note, there's an article on the front of the word. The article is the definite article, the, the faith. Okay, not just faith, the faith. The definite article changes, then, the use of the word. It becomes not just faith as something you possess in a sort of nebulous sense, but the faith meaning there's some specific uniqueness about this particular thing that we're discussing here. And so, as I said a moment ago, he's using this word to describe the content of faith as a system. All of what the Christian religion defines to be true within itself. That is essential in order to be believed, in order to be saved. 
In other words, there's certain things that must be true and must be believed in order for one to be saved. The system isn't just believe whatever you want and you can call yourself a Christian. That's not the definition of Christianity, and it's certainly not what Jude is speaking of here when he talks about the faith. He's talking about a specific understanding revealed to us by God that becomes then the basis of what we trust to be saved. In other words, there must be certain objective truths and realities that we embrace in order to be saved. A man cannot just walk around saying, well, I'm a Christian. I have no idea who Jesus is. I'm not sure I believe in the resurrection of him from the dead. Uh, I do go to a so-called Christian church, but I'm not exactly sure what they believe, and call himself saved. By definition, Christianity possesses certain objective, unfalsifiable realities that must be true. Otherwise, it's really nothing to hold on to. So by using the word in this form, Jude is using it in the sense of suggesting that there is in fact something foundational, something at the core that must be believed, i.e. you must trust it, that's why he uses the word faith, it must be believed, it must be trusted in order for a man to have a salvation. There cannot be just a nebulous sense. Now, the problem, of course, as I said a moment ago, using this word in this way causes problems because there are many who will use it in this way. They will use it as a noun, and they will use it as a possession, and they will often ignore its verbal form. They will assume that salvation is attained simply by possessing the details without acting out that belief in life. There are millions upon millions of people that are sitting in churches even this morning who hold in their minds a certain creed that they possess, certain truth statements, if you will. They hold in their head. And they say, the proof of my salvation is the fact that I hold these truths in my head. But that would be exactly the opposite of James's approach in his letter. Because James would argue a man cannot simply say that he has faith. He must act upon that faith. It must show up in his life. It must come out of his mind into his heart and into his hands in order for it to be actual salvation. We've become very good, actually, over the last hundred years at turning faith into a noun and making faith into something that you possess. I mean, even some of the worst heretics that you see today would argue, well, yes, we believe in the Christian faith. I have the Christian faith. I belong to the Christian faith. But they're not acting upon what it is that's core to that faith and trusting in Christ in the way that the Scriptures reveal. Jude is concerned about the entire breadth of what has been revealed regarding the nature of salvation And he uses the core reality within salvation as a descriptor of its content. So the core element of salvation is faith, trusting in Christ, believing in the promises of God as they are manifested in Christ. We believe those promises. He takes that core thing and he uses it as a descriptor, the faith. 
The faith has certain core elements in it. As I said a moment ago, Jude assumes that there is, in fact, a concrete substance to the faith. There's a concrete substance to the Christian religion. It is not a set of wavering opinions of men over time. It is not something that uh, has a wavering set of opinions depending on who you ask. And you can get all kinds of different opinions about what Christianity is. Rather, Jude assumes that at the very core of the faith, there is a concrete set of revealed truths. We call them doctrines. At the very core of Christianity, Jude argues, is something foundational and unshakable and unequivocal. And that is a core set of beliefs. The Christian religion is fixed and revealed. The Christian religion is fixed and revealed. Our opinions are irrelevant. Our opinions are irrelevant. If you come to me and say, if you come to me and start your conversation with, I believe that, I'm going to stop you right there and say, I don't care what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is, what has God revealed? You can believe that the devil is blue, but that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you believe in the core foundational truths that have been revealed by God. You don't really shouldn't even care about my opinion, frankly, on these matters. There's far too many people who put too, way too much stock in their preacher and give to him the authority to be the opinion. And they follow the opinions of men, which is why they don't preach from Scripture. We should be asking ourselves this question. Is what is being said consistent with what God has revealed in his word? If it's not, then you need to go to the man and say, I'm sorry, you were inconsistent with what the word of God says, and let me show you what it says. Our opinions don't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters is Yahweh. What he has revealed at the very core of the Christian faith. Jude is concerned about that. See it? He was concerned. He said, I wanted to write something about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write about the faith. And he calls it not just the faith but the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, that's an important dis, uh, descriptor on the back of that word faith. By the way, that entire phrase becomes an adjective. The faith, the faith that's once delivered to the saints. The once delivered to the saints' faith is what it is. The target audience, who did God reveal this to? Now, this word saints is an interesting word. It, too, is a word that should be very familiar to you, not in Greek, but in English. It is the word, really, that should be translated holy. Hagios. It is a word for holy, or sacred, or set apart, or dedicated. God is hagios. He is holy. He is set apart. He is dedicated unto himself and nothing else. In this case because it's used in this way, Jude is referring to a people group, obviously, right? Those set apart by God in holiness. 
Now notice Jude uses the word holy to describe a people. In fact, the New Testament does. Jude simply follows this along. A people who are set aside by God in holiness. Now once, once again, let me remind you of the mythology of Roman Catholicism. Notice I use that word mythology here. The mythology of Roman Catholicism says that there are certain people who are saints, capital S, saints, right? These are people who, I guess you and I would describe them as super-Christians. Okay, These are the ones who are canonized by the church, meaning they're set apart by the church. The word canonized means to be grouped together and set apart. This is a canon, a group of things set apart and grouped together. Okay, So saints are canonized in that they are set apart unto themselves because they possess more righteousness than they needed in this life. The uh, Roman Catholic in the back just giggled. The former Roman Catholic in the back just giggled. Okay, now did you hear what I just said? These are people the church declares have, by virtue of their righteous life, the life that they lived, they actually generated more righteousness than they needed in order to be saved. They went immediately to heaven. They bypassed purgatory. Okay, They had the magical get-out-of-jail-free card because of the righteousness of their lives, and they immediately passed past purgatory and went directly into the presence of God. In our lifetime, we've seen a few saints canonized in this way. Pope John Paul II was canonized, although church canon says they're not supposed to be. Popes are never supposed to be canonized. But hey, we could change the rules whenever we want to, right? Okay, so John Paul II went right to the head of the line. Mother Teresa went right to the head of the line. And there have been a few others, you probably don't know, who have also been canonized in the 20th century because they had, according to church mythology, more righteousness than they needed. Now, the good news about that, by the way, is because they have more righteousness than they needed, they can add their excess righteousness to something called the treasury of merit, which means that you can borrow from it. Okay? You can go down to your local priest and you can have the local priest make an appeal on behalf of you through a mass said specifically for that, on behalf of either an individual currently in purgatory or for yourself. Or you can buy an indulgence in which an indulgence will give you some of the excess righteousness sitting in the treasury of merit that you can then apply to your own case and probably get a few thousand years knocked off of your sentence in purgatory. It's an exciting deal. It's a fact, it's one of the reasons that, it's one of the things that sparked the Reformation. Martin Luther saw the selling of indulgences in his day to be so anti-Christian. It's one of the reasons why he nailed his 95 Theses to the door at the Church of Wittenberg. The entire 95 Theses, by the way, are about indulgences and the practice of giving the supposed righteousness of the saints over to other people. You'll notice that the entire system is built, of course, upon the premise that you and I have to produce our own righteousness in order to get to heaven or buy some from someone else which pretty much does away with the Christian gospel, doesn't it? So when I say that the Catholic Church doesn't possess the Christian gospel, I'm not really speaking too far away from the truth, am I? Apparently you can't say that, though, in certain places. Anyways, the Bible doesn't use the word that way. The Bible uses the word saints to refer to those who have trusted in Christ by faith and are therefore declared righteous by God, declared to be holy 
by him. Hagios, set apart, declared to be holy. You and I, when we trust in Christ, we are, according to the New Testament, saints. And not in some special canonized way where we get a, a special road up in heaven to live on, no. We are in a state of being considered by God to be righteous. The term we use is justified. That's the term Paul uses in his letters, justified. Set apart, declared righteous, made holy by God. All of the elect who by faith in Christ are declared holy by God. Literally every Christian, every true follower of Christ. So this is a message that has been revealed to a specific group of people. The message of the gospel, let's call it the revelation of God regarding his entire decree of salvation, the message of the gospel, although it is available to all people by virtue of its publicly preached nature, it is, in the end, a possession only of those for whom it was intended to have its full effect. The only people who can truly grasp and understand the gospel are those for whom it was intended to have its effect. The elect, the saints, those who are declared holy by virtue of faith. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the gospel is foolishness to the perishing. It makes no sense to the world out there. But to you and I, who believe in Christ, it is precious. And only those who have been born again by the Spirit of the living God are fully able to appreciate its breadth. Twenty-five weeks of discussion of soteriology is pointless to people who have never been born again. No idea what you're talking about, nor do they care. The world looks at you, if you trust in Christ and have been declared holy by God, the world looks at you as though you are a fool. You're a fool. You believe a message which, in their mind, subjugates you to a life of self-sacrifice. Subjugates you to a life of living under obedience to someone else. You see, because those of us who are reprobate, we get to do whatever we want. So we get to do whatever we want. We get to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, because we're free. You Christians have embraced some sort of message that limits your ability to have fun. And that's why we don't want to believe it, because, well, I, I like having fun. I like wallowing in my immorality. I don't even call it that, because I don't even have a basis for that. What Jude says is this is a message. The faith has been delivered to a specific people God has revealed it only to his elect. It is the people of God, the saints, who have received this message. And they are the ones who are able to understand its breath. Now, of course, we know why, right? Jude doesn't say this, but we can simply infer this from all the rest of the New Testament. The reason why is the presence of the third person of the Trinity who takes that message and opens it up to our hearts and our minds. I will send to you a comforter, and he will teach you all that you need to know. The Spirit of the living God comes, and not only does he take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we might trust in this Jesus, but then he fills us with the desire to know more and more about who this Jesus is and what this Jesus has done. 
And what it is that God has revealed and purposed in his world. The Spirit of the living God has been sent by the Son into the world to teach you everything there is to know about what it is that God has revealed. Now, God does not... No, let me be careful here. God has not revealed everything, okay? We must not plod the path of thinking that God is going to tell us every little detail. He's not going to tell us, for example, why any of us were set aside unto him and elect. He's not going to tell us that. Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things we do know, we teach to our children. The bottom line is, is that God has revealed a message called the faith, the core elements of which must be believed in order to be saved. But here's the thing. He's revealed it to those who will believe those core things, as well as much else that goes with it. So he tells us, Jude tells us, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, so he describes the object, but then before the object he gives his verb. Or, I would say, he gives his imperative. I'm writing to you, rather than writing about some sort of common salvation, I'm writing to you for you to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Okay? So now we come to the word contend. It's a word about this long in the Greek, and there's no way in the world I can can say it uh, and get it right, but it's a word that literally means to expend energy to hold on to something valuable. We might say it's to fight for it or or to struggle for it, but to expend energy to hold on to something valuable. Now, you will notice it's in the form of an imperative. It's a command. I am writing to you to do this, okay? To do this for this salvation that we have, this faith that has been delivered to us, that's been revealed to us, to us who are the saints, right? You and I, the elect, we are the saints. God has given to us this revelation. We have believed it. We have this common salvation between us. Here's what I want you to do. You need to contend for that. You need to fight for it. What Jude is really going to say through the rest of this letter is that the imperative is not to allow false teachers to corrupt the content of the faith. To not allow false teachers to corrupt the content of the gospel. And we'll see that as we move along. The principle here, my friends, is this. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is under constant attack by a world that despises the message. I hate to break that to you, but here it is. The gospel has been under attack from the moment that it came forth from the lips of Christ and the lips of his apostles. From the moment that Paul walked into churches and saw people converted. From the moment that Jesus himself went back to his father's side The gospel, the message of Christ, the revelation that God has given into his world has been under attack. It's been under attack. Why? Have you ever asked that question? Why? Why? Why would reprobate men give a rip about what you and I believe? Why? Why would they care? Why would they care? 
I mean, the, the reality should be that the reprobate man should just look at should just look at you and say, "Well, you know what you believe is stupid. I don't, I'm not going to believe it. I don't care. So if you want to believe it, go ahead. Don't bother me. It has nothing to do with me. I mean, I'm just going to go live my life because I'm enjoying my sin. You just go and do whatever you want to do." He would never say that, by the way. That I'm going to go enjoy my sin. That's a word he would never use. All right? Okay. So why do the reprobate attack the gospel? Why bother? What harm is it to them? Oh, but it is. Oh, but it is. You see, because it, it, there's a number of things about the gospel that offends them. It demands loyalty to Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ that's been revealed demands loyalty to Jesus. You can't come and say, I'm a follower of Christ, and yet have another master, right? So it demands loyalty to Jesus, which they don't want to give. It reveals moral inadequacy. It reveals the fact that you and I are, in fact, sinful, rebellious creatures at heart. Simply speaking, the gospel reveals to the reprobate man that he has a moral inadequacy. Thirdly, it establishes the only way to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ establishes the singular way to God. You know what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not inclusive. It's exclusive. It's extremely exclusive. There is only one way to Yahweh, and that's through Jesus. Sorry. I realize that in our very diverse and inclusive culture that there are many ways to God, but not to Yahweh. And fourthly, it pronounces judgment. The worst part of the gospel to the reprobate ear is that it reminds the reprobate man that he is, in fact, awaiting judgment. And then finally, more than anything else, it separates men. It separates one from another. You see, the reason why men hate the gospel is it because it reveals that they are under the judgment of their Creator. The gospel message, when preached properly into the world, proclaims to all men that they are under the judgment of God. It establishes that they are permanently guilty before both God and man. The message of the gospel, whether they believe it or not, and they don't, right? They're reprobate. They don't believe it. But the message of the gospel, when it's proclaimed correctly from Scripture, produces a result in the mind and heart of the reprobate man. It reveals his judgment. It lets him know that he is guilty. Guilty. I would encourage you, by the way, to go and thumb through the discussions of theology that we did on Wednesday night, and find a particular one on original guilt. Because this is a discussion that is most important and relevant to this. And it basically goes something like this. Original guilt is the idea that every single human being born into the world is already guilty before God and condemned. Born innocent? No. Guilty. And requires, then, a sin offering to pay for the guilt. By the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, 
Leviticus chapters 1 through whatever are all about how much God takes sin seriously. Kill this animal, do this, take care of this. If you have an unclean thought, you have to go get this, take care of that. What's the point of all that? God takes sin seriously. Men are under judgment. So Jude insists that saints need to fight to hold on to the doctrines they have received. We need to fight to hold on to the doctrines that God has revealed. Again, what's the world going to do? Fight against it. What's the world going to do? Try to pervert it. Try to change it. Going to try to get you to believe something other than what God has revealed to you because I, 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 I need you to believe something else. What you believe puts me under judgment. I need to believe something else. So it's going to try to change the message against you. Jude insists that saints need to fight to hold on to the doctrines they have received. My job as a preacher of the Word is to teach you theology. Yes, I said that. That's my job. My job is to teach you theology. Now, I realize that in the world today, there's a lot of pastors who see their job as simply providing you with encouragement, right? Come into the sanctuary. I will give you a nice, uplifting little message about how wonderful your life can be. I'm sorry that you had a bad week, but you know, this week's going to be so much better. I can just feel it. God loves you. And so I'm going to send you out with a little word of encouragement in the hope that it will help you through the week. And then most people realize after about six months of that that I've been lying to you. But nonetheless, that's what many people believe. But the true shepherd... The true shepherd of God exhorts his people to holiness by teaching them the truth. What does the scripture really say? Now, it may not be pleasant for us to hear, but it is necessary for us to hear. So let me ask you two questions this morning. Number one, are you fighting to grasp the fullness of what has been revealed? Are you fighting to grasp the fullness of what has been revealed? Do you consider it an essential element of what it means to be a Christian to actually fight to learn all of what God has revealed? Because it is a fight. It is a contending that you need to do. Are you doing that? Are you trying to learn all that the Scriptures have taught about what it is that God has revealed? And then secondly, are you willing to fight that the church teaches only what God has revealed? Are you willing to stand up and say, listen, preacher, don't come in here with your encouraging messages. You come in here and you teach us what the Word of God says. I want to know everything that is revealed in the Word of God about what God has said and what I'm supposed to believe. Are you willing to fight for that? Are you willing to fight that your church is not taken over by men who will creep in and try to change the message? Which is exactly where we get to in verse 4. You will notice what he says next. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Here's, again, as I've said multiple times, the thesis of the letter. The thesis of the letter is, the church has been infiltrated by people who come to pervert the grace of God. What's the imperative then? The imperative is, you must fight against them. Don't allow them to come and to teach what is inconsistent with what God has revealed. You need to stand up and look them in the eye and tell them, get out. 
when they bring that which is inconsistent with what God has revealed. You must fight to protect what you have received. You must contend for the faith that's been delivered. Why? Because there are men who have infiltrated. They've come in unexpectedly. You didn't even notice it. They appear in the church blending in. <coughs> they blend in as believers. I think about the Judaizers of Paul's day. What did they do? They followed him around from church to church. When he would leave, they would go in, try to teach the, the Gentile believers in those churches, you've got to follow the Jewish laws, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to follow all the Jewish feast days in order to be a Christian. And Paul had to go and constantly fight against these people from the very beginning of the church age that were perverting the grace of God. Now, they may truly believe that they are followers of Christ. Okay, here's the problem. There are people who honestly believe that they're followers of Christ. They truly believe that they have uh, been born again by the Spirit of God, but they espouse ideas <coughs> that run contrary to the revealed gospel. Here's one of the things you'll notice. <coughs> their faith, their faith, quote-unquote, is not in Christ but it's in their own beliefs. The subtle change is they come saying, you must believe me. I have a word for you. You must come and believe me. You must follow me. I'm the source. Let me, let me tell you, that's not quite right. This is right. Listen to me. Follow me. Notice the subtle change of attention away from the centrality of what's been revealed by God over to what they believe to be true. Now, are these people saved and deceived, or are they simply reprobate men masquerading as Christians? And I think that Jude is referring to individuals who are still actually reprobate, but believed they are saved and have all the right answers. Jesus himself warns about this kind of person, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Just before those infamous words where he says, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Just before that, he makes a comment about the, and warns his disciples about the wolves who come in sheep's clothing. They appear to us as those who belong to Jesus and they will say all the right things and they have all the right answers but they're not really followers of Jesus they are revealed by a singular trait they're revealed by a singular trait go down to verse 8 yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What is their trait? They insist that they are the authority. You must listen to me. You see, for 2,000 years, the church has gotten it wrong. But I tell you, I now tell you, let me give you something that you haven't heard before that I can share with you that will tickle your ears. They come claiming to be 
the authority. They will put themselves even in positions of authority where they will work for long periods of time to establish themselves in places where they have authority. And then they will begin to reveal who they really are. They will now turn the attention of the church away from what has been revealed to what they now know to be true. This is dangerous. And Jude says they are designated for this condemnation. They are preordained to a specific condemnation. Now, I believe that Jude is going to tell us what that condemnation is starting in verse 5. This condemnation is referring to all the apocalyptic language that's going to come starting in verse 5. So he says, here's the thing. They are going to be condemned. This is what they're going to be condemned. But they were preordained to this particular condemnation. This word designated, this designated condemnation, means to be written beforehand. It's written beforehand. It's composed in the past. We would use the word preordained. It is individuals who, of their own volition, act against the church. They want to. They desire to do so. And they receive a preordained condemnation. God has already decided what the condemnation will be for such men. He's already established it. In fact, he's already given us examples of it in the past in order for us to understand it. That's where Jude's going to go. They want to do this, but God has ordained what their end will be. And who's the greatest example in the New Testament of that? Judas. Did he want to betray his Lord? Yes, he did. Did he purposely go out and act to do so? Did he go and pursue someone else who would help him in the task? You bet he did. And yet, what did Jesus say about him? It would have been better if he'd never been born because he was preordained to this judgment. God has preordained these men. God has preordained these men to come into the church. Now, let me ask you a question. Why? Why would God allow opposition to appear within the church? I mean, if if I were God, now there's a statement, If I were God, I would have said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create new believers by faith. They're going to be instantly sinless. They're going to join together in churches. Those churches are going to be pure and unadulterated by any sort of heresy. And they're going to be very, very different from all the other people in the world. Why has God decided to allow ordinary people, ordinary sinners to be saved by faith who will continue to sin in their lives and then join together in churches where they'll be infiltrated by men who will try to pervert the gospel in them. Why? Why would he allow that? And I think the answer is self-evident within this letter. Such things, excuse me, such things strengthen faith. We are forced to go to God, to his word, We're forced to seek out help from men that we trust in the faith that help us to seek out what is true. It grows the depth of faith in believers by forcing them to think it through carefully. It forces us to do that. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. What Jude suggests is, listen, we need to contend 
for the faith that has been delivered. It is a unique faith that God has made aware to his own people, to those who belong. But we must not take it for granted. We must never take for granted that we have that faith solidly in front of us. We must make sure that we are constantly contending for it. Do we really know what it means to be saved? What is God's word revealed? This strengthens faith in us. The warning, however, is that there will be men who will come and they will attempt to pervert. They will attempt to change. Now, we haven't said what that looks like yet. That's the rest of verse 4. And based on that, that inexorable device on the wall, i got to stop here. But that's okay. Because I think we have the point that we need to think about to begin with. Jude's intention in writing was to write to command his fellow believers. Contend for the faith. Fight for it. Fight for it. Don't just assume you know it. And don't just assume that everybody teaching it is teaching it well. Contend for that faith. Demand that only what God has revealed is what you believe. We will look at what these men will try to do next week, Lord willing. 